When Billy Graham got near retirement, he gave an interview once, and, and they were asking him, so has anything changed in your ministry? Over all these decades, has anything changed now that you, from when you first started to when you've come to the end? And I'll never forget, Billy Graham said, when I was young, I, I wanted to have all the answers. I wanted things to be black and white and crystal clear. But now that I've gotten older, I'm less concerned about the details, and I trust more in God's grace. And I have to tell you, that's been kind of my experience too. When I was young, I wanted to make sure I could tell you all the answers to the questions that you had. But as I've gotten older, I've become more comfortable with mystery. More comfortable with saying there are things that I do not know. More comfortable in saying we are called to trust in God's love and grace for us. And that really is where I come to stand on this question, what will heaven be like? This morning I want to continue on the sermon series we started last week. Last week we said we're going to have a sermon series on the questions for God. We ask you to send in your questions. You sent in hundreds. The Reverend Wendy Lambert and I sat down. We went through them, tried to collate them into seven. And now we're trying to wrestle with those the best we can each week. One of the questions that you ask most often was, What is heaven like? And I have to tell you right off the bat, there is some mystery in answering that question. There is no way for us to know all the details because you and I have lived our whole life trapped in a body. We're trapped by time and space. And life after death will be life in the spirit. No longer trapped by the body. No longer trapped by time and space. It is something we've never experienced. And so you can never really understand it completely now. Though it is obvious you and I have a great fascination with it. All you got to do is look at the New York Times bestseller list over the last several years. And you will find book after book all about heaven. I mean the book Heaven is for Real. The story of the little boy who had a near-death experience comes back and tells his mom and dad what he saw. And they begin to interpret that and write that down. Or the book Proof of Heaven by Eben Alexander. A neurosurgeon who was a scientist and felt there was no room for God in his world until he goes into a coma for seven days. He should have died. Why he comes back, no one could tell. But when he comes back, he's had a near-death experience, and he has totally changed 180 degrees to say, there is something more. There is something more than just what you and I see and know and think here on this earth. There's something more. It is a great book, Proof of Heaven. I, I highly recommend it to you. But he was the one who made the comment of saying, when I try to tell you what it was like on the other side, it's like trying to write a novel with half the alphabet. You can't describe the things that you've never experienced before. And so it is, you and I have to start taking time to look where we can. We look to the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about heaven? You know, I went back and looked at that carefully, and you can read in the book of Revelation. It says, well, there's gates of pearl and streets of gold, and it's a land flowing with milk and honey. I certainly hope you do not believe that literally. 
what that's supposed to say to us is there's gates of pearl and streets of gold. It's going to be more beautiful than you've ever been able to imagine. It's going to be the best of the best. Gates of pearl and streets of gold. Milk and honey. Well, that tells you there is nothing that you lack. You will have no need. Everything will be taken care of. You will be healed and whole. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. That's paradise in a place of pearl and gold, more beautiful than anything you can imagine. It's supposed to give us a symbolism of what it means. We read what Jesus had to say, and I love the statement of our scripture lesson. When you come to death, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go... I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. It's on that kind of a foundation and the trust of Christ's promise that we begin to wrestle with what do we believe heaven is like. Now, we need to take a moment and kind of walk through the last 50 years because the way we look at heaven and death has changed dramatically. For those of you who are old enough to remember 50 and 60 years ago, you'll remember certain things. And those of you who are younger than that, well, let me tell you how much has changed. 50 to 60 years ago, if you went to the doctor, they did not tell you about your prognosis. They did not tell you all the things they knew about you. They would examine you. They might prescribe a treatment. But they didn't tell you this is what I think is happening. They certainly did not tell you, you got a terminal illness and I think you're dying. It was believed you couldn't handle that. You couldn't handle the knowledge that you were dying. And many of us did not want to deal with that. And so doctors didn't tell you. But in 1967, Cicely Saunders came along. And she was a social worker in England. And she saw what was happening in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in hospitals. And how doctors would wait on their patients. And when they realized they were dying, they came by less and less. And nurses came by less and less. And patients were basically left alone to die in the hospital. And Cicely Saunders said, that's not right. We need to help this be a special holy moment when you come to transition from this life to the next. So in 1967, Cicely Saunders started um, St. Christopher Hospice. A hospice is a word for a place where travelers in Europe, for years when they traveled, you'd go stay in a hospice. She chose the name St. Christopher because that's the patron saint uh, of travelers. And the way she looked at it, as we're all on a journey, and when you come to this time in your journey, there needs to be a place where you come. And people pay attention to you, not ignore you. You're surrounded by family, by friends. You get the medical care you need, but it's not about medical care at this point. It's about life and sharing that with those that you love and preparing for the journey to begin the next phase of your life. Well, that seems so common now. This was a radical new thing in 1967. In 1969, there was a lady named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She was Jewish. She had survived the Holocaust. 
She begins studying what happened when people die. And she wrote a book on death and dying. It was a radical book when it came out for people to read. Because you see, most people don't want to talk about death. Sometimes we still don't. And yet the time to talk about death and dying and what you believe about eternal life is before you get there and have to suddenly confront it for yourself or a loved one. And when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came out with this book in 1969, it was radical and it got people to talking. And then in 1975, Raymond A. Moody came out with a book entitled Life After Life. I was my first year in seminary. I remember when that book came out. Boy, I mean, everybody was required to read it. It was read by the medical community, the scientific community, the theological community. You see, by 1975, medicine had progressed far enough that we were getting pretty good with shooting drugs into the heart and electric shock and starting to resuscitate people who had been declared clinically dead. And as we did that, people were having the strangest experiences. There were people who were thinking, I had an out-of-the-body experience. I can tell you what was going on. I was looking back. Or people were having these bizarre experiences and they wanted to talk about them. And when they came back to talk to their doctors, their doctors were going, uh, you were just hallucinating. I, I don't want to talk about this. When you came and told your friend, I was floating above my body and I saw what was going on. They had a word for you. Crazy. People did not come forward to talk about these experiences. And it was Dr. Moody who decided to try to hunt down all these people who had been resuscitated and simply say, did anything interesting happen? Some said no. Some said yes. And if they said yes, he simply said, tell me about it. He did not offer any kind of commentary. He did, just tell me about it. After he had interviewed 150 people, he was able to look at all these things and say, wow, there's certain things that are showing up over and over again in all these people, and they don't know one another. There haven't been 100 books on the bestseller list about near-death experiences. He's just going, this is amazing. I'm hearing the same thing over and over. He wrote the book. He comes to the end and says, this doesn't prove anything. But it is interesting. We probably need to look at this a little more. And so it was that time went on in 1992. You had Patricia Kelly, Maggie Callahan. They were hospice nurses. Hospice now had gained real momentum by the 90s. It was in lots of places. We were all using it. And a lot of these hospice nurses were getting together and saying, I got to tell you what I saw with this lady. I want to tell you what I saw with this man. And they were seeing so many things in common. They wrote a book in 1992 called Final Gifts. I highly recommend it to you. Final Gifts. All about the stories from hospice nurses. What were they seeing and learning from each other? And again, it got everybody talking. By then, medicine has progressed so far. Science has progressed so far. We do amazing things to resuscitate people. And now we're a culture that is open to talking about death. 
And so it is we see book after book about near-death experiences because we all want to know. Is there something more? What is it like? I just want to remind you it was Paul who said to us, right now we see through a glass darkly. One day we shall see face to face. Right now I know in part. One day I will know fully as I have been fully known. There is still this place for mystery of trying to understand in faith but knowing we can never know all the details exactly. So let me remind you, as Methodist, you and I are encouraged to think about these things, to develop our theology. And as Methodist, we encourage you to use Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. Four things. What does the Bible say? What has the church historically said? What is your experience? And you use your God gift and reason to look at these things and to grow in your faith. So I want to use that as we look at this passage. Three things I want to say today. First of all, I believe that when you die, you are born into the arms of God. You know the presence of God. And you will know the presence of those that you have loved and those who have loved you. I believe that the Bible tells us that death is not the end. It is a doorway into a new existence. Everybody who's had near-death experiences all talk about going to the light, being drawn to a presence, a being that is so loving, that is all accepting, that is described as God. Some call it Jesus. There's always people that they know, that they love, that have loved them. In our scripture lesson, Jesus said, And if I go, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We are born into the arms of God. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me. You will be with me in paradise. I believe that what we know is that we are born into the arms of God, into His presence, and those that we know and those that we love. It was Maggie Callahan in her book, Final Gifts. What a fascinating story about a lady named Sue. Sue is 93 years old. She and her husband John had immigrated from China decades before. It turned out that her husband had now died a number of years before. She was 93. She had cancer. She was dying. She knew it. She was okay with that. And she had been being taken care of by Lily, her daughter, doing a good job. But finally it got to the point that it was coming near the end. They needed pain management. And so Maggie came in to help Lily. And she would come in and she would sit there with Sue. And Sue started telling her, You know, I've been talking with my husband John. And he's been telling me to come home, that it's good. I got to tell you, one of the things that is seen over and over is that as people grow close to death, quite often a loved one comes. Somebody that is known, somebody that was loved, they come. And it seems like the veil 
between life and death grows thin as we get close. And those who are dying seem to be able to see those that others cannot. And it always is very comforting. It is always people who are dead and people that they loved. It's happened in our family. Probably has happened in yours. If we listen, you might be surprised. And so it was that Maggie was hearing this from Sue. And it was very comforting to Sue. And then one morning she was agitated. And she said, I don't understand. My sister was with my husband, John, this morning. Well, Maggie went to go talk to Lily about that. And Lily broke into tears and started crying and said, My mom and my aunt, her sister, are so very close. They haven't seen each other in more than a decade. As they've gotten older, she still lives in China. She died two days ago. We didn't want to tell mom. We knew how much it would upset her. And... We know she is close to death, so we didn't want to put this on her right now. Maggie said, I think she can handle it. And so Lily went back in and sat down on the side of her mother's bed and started to cry and said, Your sister, I know you love her so much. She has died. And she said, rather than getting upset, you could just see Sue begin to relax. And she smiled and said, Now I understand. Within a week, Sue stepped over to the other side very peacefully and began that new life. I believe the Bible tells us clearly. I believe it is the affirmation of our church. I believe it is what we see happen in the world. Death is simply a veil, a doorway into a new experience where you are born into the arms of God and into the presence of those you love. I wish I could give more detail, but we cannot know that until we step over the line. We trust it's going to be good. Secondly, when people talk about heaven, it's all about love. The Bible tells us it's going to be about love. When you go to heaven... It's about being loved unconditionally. It's about being accepted unconditionally. It's been the tradition of the church. It's what our Bible tells us. And I believe it's what people experience. People who come back with NDEs all talk about they don't want to come back. Marcia had an aunt who was in a serious accident. And she had to be resuscitated. And they did resuscitate her. And when she came back, she was mad as could be. She said she had been climbing a ladder and kept getting to the top to where this incredible party was going on and life seemed to be so good and she was being drawn in and something kept pulling her back and it was the prayers of family and friends. And finally she was pulled back and came back. She was not happy. She said it was so good. She came back and lived fully for many years. But when that day came for her to be ready to go home, She was not afraid. She knew that it was going to be all about love. Now, if heaven is all about loving God and being loved and loving others, then what does it say about our pets? I told you last week, this is the question you asked the most out of all the questions. Will I see my pet in heaven? And I got to tell you, you stumped me. I've never preached on that. I've never researched that. But I worked on it this last week at your request. 
And so I went back to study the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures had to say. And the Scriptures are pretty quiet on whether pets go to heaven or not. Okay? Doesn't mean they do. Doesn't mean they don't. It's just pretty quiet. I couldn't find a lot of Scripture to base my answer on one way or the other. So I went to look at the history of the church. What have we believed historically? I looked at John Wesley, and I, I couldn't find where John Wesley said anything about pets going to heaven. Maybe he did, but I, I, I couldn't find it. But I could in the Catholic Church. Back in the 1840s to 1860, you had Pope Pius. Pope Pius was a pretty strong pope, and he didn't err on the warm, friendly, loving side. He was a man in charge, and he made a declaration, pets do not go to heaven. But Pope John Paul II came along, and he did love animals. And he made a statement that animals have a soul and are as close to God as people are. But then Pope Benedict came along. And if you remember Pope Benedict, our last pope before the present one, again, he, he wasn't real warm and fuzzy kind of guy. I didn't see him as a pet lover. He came out and said, pets do not go to heaven. But now we have Pope Francis, named after St. Francis of Assisi, the patron saint of animals. <laughs> and he is this warm, loving, friendly kind of guy. And oh my goodness gracious, Pope Francis has been making comments that tend to imply pets go to heaven. So when you look at the historical church and what does the tradition say? I have no idea. <laughs> it's all there. So I looked at experience, people who've had near-death experiences. And what you find is everybody who has a near-death experience talks about the beauty of creation, that heaven is beautiful. Trees and flowers and fields and animals, certainly to be expected. So do your pets go to heaven? This is what's in the pastor's cut tomorrow on TV, I guarantee you. There's a lot I can't go into today. I think it is safe to say that if you want to believe your pet goes to heaven, that is not heresy. There is no reason to assume that that is not correct. As I had a good friend who loves her dogs tell me, I expect my dogs to be in heaven. If I get to heaven and they are not... I know that it will be so good what God has prepared for me that I will not be disappointed. But in the meantime, I expect to see them there. <laughs> I think you've got to decide where you land on that when I can't find a good theological reason one way or the other to tell you what I think you should believe. But third, I do believe that reality is more than just what you can see and touch and feel and hear. This is really all about trusting in God's love for us. You and I live in a society, a time in history, when we believe what is real is what you can see. It's what you can touch. It's what you can hold on to. What's happened down through the years is... For centuries, we all believed in mystery. It was easy to believe in heaven and angels and all kinds of things. 
And then we came to the 1700s. Isaac Newton began to help us come out of this age of superstition and into the age of reason. Thank God we needed to do that. And Isaac Newton was a man of faith. And he believed that science would prove God. That's what he thought. And he began to make all kinds of discoveries and say, what is real? Can you touch it? Can you measure it? Can you feel it? He moved us into the age of science. But the strange thing happened. As we became more scientific, we no longer trusted mystery. We began to believe all that was true was what you could see and what you could hold. And we stopped believing that there was something more. And I think reality is both. Science is never at odds with religion. Science simply discovers God's creation. But it doesn't tell us all of God's creation. Our senses limit us from seeing what is more. Reality is more than just what you see. And as people of faith, for us it's about saying, I trust Christ. I trust Jesus when He says, don't be afraid. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you I'd go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. We trust reality is more than just what we see. Many of you will remember Rachel Remen. She came here a number of years ago now. She wrote the book, My Grandfather's um, Blessing. Um, uh, what an amazing man. He was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, a man of great faith. And Rachel writes all about her grandfather and stories about her life. She came here to, to, to speak, and she is just truly a, a wonderful lady of faith. When we got through that day, I'll never forget, we went back over to the parsonage. You see, Rachel has so many dietary problems, she can't really go out for restaurants to go out to eat. And we decided it'd be easier to cook, so we went over to the parsonage. And so Marcia and Kelly and Paul and myself, we all got in to cook. But Rachel just jumped right in and said, I want to help too. And all five of us were in the kitchen cooking together. She was so neat. But I was so fascinated by her grandfather, and I kept wanting to ask questions and tell me about your grandfather. Well, she started telling us the fascinating thing was her grandfather, her grandmother, they lived in a small town of about 4,500 Jews. And they lived on the border between Poland and Russia. And it was all according to who was in power, what country they lived in. If Poland was stronger, the line was drawn and they were Polish. If Russia was stronger, the line was drawn and they were Russian. So they never knew what country they supposedly were in until later on. It just kind of went back and forth. Well, she said her grandfather, he did the important things. He studied the Torah, he studied the, the Talmud, he would teach the people, and he kind of helped run the town. All of that was non-paying. Her grandmother, she said, she did the mundane things, like earn money, to keep a roof over their head and food on the table and kind of take care of all the family. She was a jeweler. She made the money so the family could eat, so that grandfather, he could do the important things. Study the Torah, study the Talmud. Teach the people. Well, one night he had a dream. He had a dream that there was this wing that was moving across all of Europe and all of the lights in the synagogue 
were going out. He awoke and it disturbed him. He did not know what it meant. A week later, he had the dream again. A wing moving over all of Europe and all the lights in the synagogue going out. A week later, he had the dream for the third time. When he had the dream for the third time, he went to the people in his town and said, It is time for us to immigrate to the United States. And they said, Why? And he said, I don't know. But I think God is telling us, it's time to go. And the people did what the rabbi said. And over 4,000 people gathered up all that they had, and they headed for the United States. And they immigrated right before Hitler began the first program there over in Poland. They all made it. They all made it to the United States. They settled. Her mother, grandfather, grandmother, her husband, her, her father, all of his family was a part of that community. They all came to the United States. They all studied hard. Her father became a doctor. Her mother would have been a doctor, but in those days, she became a nurse. They both worked at the hospital as hard as they could. And then Rachel was born. Rachel's grandfather was living with them. They needed him to babysit. And the fascinating thing was her parents had gotten so focused on science that they said religion is the opiate of the masses. They no longer went to the synagogue. They no longer worshipped. And they sat down with Rachel's grandfather and said, Do not talk about your superstition to your granddaughter. Do not talk about those things. And he said, Okay. And so they went to work. And as soon as they were gone, he would sit down with Rachel and say, Let me tell you about Abraham. <laughs> and he told her the stories of faith. And he talked to her about all the things of a people. And Rachel would grow up as a lady of great faith. And now we were standing around talking in our kitchen here in Oklahoma City. And as she tells the story of her grandfather and all of her family, she paused and became very reflective and then said, My mother and my father, my aunts and my uncles and all my cousins, they owe their very existence to my grandfather's dream. And yet, because they became so focused on science, they could no longer trust mystery. They could no longer believe in something more than what they could see. You and I trust in more than what we can see. Reality is more than just what we see and hold. There is what we trust in the promise of God's grace. That when we die, we're born into the arms of God. And we are born into the presence of those we love and who have loved us. And it's going to be better than anything that you and I can imagine. And all needs will be met. I wish I could give you details. But all I can tell you about is trusting in Christ's love for you. Jesus said, Don't be afraid. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, I will come again and take you to myself 
that where I am, you may be also. You and I are the people who trust in the resurrection and the promise of Easter. And that's why we have hope in heaven. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.